John chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 1. And let's look at that together, starting from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word available to us, that we can study it and learn from it, and Father, grow in it. And Lord, we know that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you desire to teach us in this place this evening. So Lord, make our hearts and minds available to you that we may learn from you. Lord, bless the study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have a wedding. Weddings are a joyful time, aren't they? Most of the time, yeah, they are. (laughs) I'll answer that for you. But sometimes things go wrong in wedding ceremonies, don't they? Sometimes things mess up. Sometimes things happen. You can go on the internet and you can look up bad things that happened at weddings. Uh, And you'll get all kinds of stuff, all kinds of horror stories and accidents and uh, bride's hair catching on fire and all just all sorts of things. Uh, But we probably all have been to weddings and have experienced something that didn't quite work out the way that it was supposed to. Those things happen. And so... Uh, we're going to see that in our text, as we read, something happens at this wedding as well. Now, going back over where we've been so far in our text, we've had this key verse that's going to be the verse for all of the book of John, which is John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, As we look through this study, as we go through the study of John's Gospel, we're going to see that John, time and time again, beheld the glory of the Lord because he was there. He witnessed these things. And so we're going to see that he will continue as he writes this Gospel. He will continue to reveal the glory of the Lord. He will continue to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of Man. And we've seen this in verses that we've looked at already in John 1.34. And I have seen and testified that this is 
the Son of God. It was the testimony of John the Baptist. And then it was further confirmed by Nathaniel, what we looked at the last time we got together. In John 1.49, he said, You are the Son of God. And then we see also in verse 51 of the first chapter, Christ Himself saying, You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus Himself is going to reveal Himself in these two ways as the Son of Man, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of glory. And we're going to see that He reveals Himself in everyday situations, everyday stuff that man deals with. He reveals Himself as the Son of Man. And then also in His miraculous works, uh, His parables, His teaching. He shows humility and compassion, mercy and grace, rebuke and correction and all of these things in the midst of all of this everyday stuff that's going on. He makes the ordinary extraordinary as the Son of God. And so in this text, as well as throughout this Gospel, we're going to see that He reveals Himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God. He reveals His glory to His disciples and those around Him. And John, one of His disciples, writes about it. And we have this account that we are studying through. He says in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John is writing those things so that we will believe, that we'll believe in all of the things that Christ did while He was here, what He came for, what He died for. He was raised from the dead on our behalf. So we see all of these things that John has uh, written down for us, for our benefit, that we can grow in them. So in this text, we see Jesus and His disciples arriving in this little town, this little community called Cana. And they're going to an event and even though it's a special day, it's, it's a wedding day for someone, it's still something that happens in the lives of everyday people. Get, people get married every day. So they go to this wedding. And we see from our text that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Jesus should always be invited to weddings, shouldn't He? He should be the honored guest. He should be the first name at the top of the, li the guest list at any wedding that takes place. So our text, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. On the third day. What's this third day referring to? What, what's that about? Well, in John 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 2, we see that Nathaniel, one of these new recruits that Jesus has now, he was actually from Cana. But it's believed by most that that means that after the initial meeting between Nathaniel and Jesus, that they went to Cana. And now it was either the third day of traveling to get there, or it was the third day after their arriving there. We don't know for sure, but we do know that it's just a short distance from Nazareth to Cana. We know that it was a pretty good hike to go from where they were uh, John was baptizing and where they first come to see and know who Jesus was. And they probably traveled to Nazareth. Remember they asked Him, do you have a place to stay? Where are you staying? And what did He say? Come and see. So He grew up in Nazareth. 
Mom still lived there, so it's an obvious place for him to go. We don't know it uh, for sure, but we'll just assume that that's the case. So it's just a short little walk, uh, five or six miles from Nazareth to Cana. So you go over a little hill, for those of you that's been to Israel, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, you go over a little hill, and then you're kind of going downhill from there towards the Sea of Galilee, and in between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee is this little town of Cana. So in Jesus' day, Jewish wedding celebrations lasted for a week. Now think about that. We today, if you have people that come in from out of town, you could say, well, the whole wedding event lasts you know, quite a number of days because of all the planning and all the things that takes place. But the actual wedding ceremony was a week-long event. It was a big deal for this to be going on. So we know from some of the writings of the uh, early Jewish historians that relatives would come into town and actually stay at the home of the bride and groom. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know when Chris and I first got married, if all of the people that came to the wedding, or a majority of them, friends, relatives, were going to be staying at our house, oh, that would have been a mess because we had a very small place. So you have people that are from the community. They're probably taking people in as well. But needless to say, there are a lot of people at their home during this time. So it's a week-long deal, and it's kind of a honeymoon, family reunion, bachelor party, wedding shower, all rolled into one big event that lasts, lasts a week. And we know from the text that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And as we'll see, she's serving in some capacity. She has some involvement in this wedding. Verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Well, why? Why were they invited to this particular wedding? Maybe they were friends of the bride or friends of the groom. We don't know. Maybe they were family members of the bride or the groom. Maybe they were invited as a courtesy. It was a small town. Everybody else was going. Maybe they just got an invite in that way. All are possible, but the key that we want to remember is the fact that Mary was there serving. So that should give us a little insight into maybe what was taking place. If Mary was actually serving at the wedding, there's a good chance that this was a family member. There are some biblical scholars that even go so far as to say that this was the wedding of John, the author of this gospel. There's not any real biblical evidence for that that's been found, but I suppose it's possible. Mary is John's aunt. John and Jesus are cousins. It's possible. Don't know. But anyway, it's probably a relative of Mary. And so, regardless of, of who was getting married and what the relationship was between Jesus and them, we know who was there by our text at this point. We know Jesus was there. We know His disciples that He had up to this point were there. And we know Mary is there. Verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Now in this culture, in the Jewish culture, to have this big celebration going on for a week, the expectation of relatives and friends and all that are there is that food and drink is going to be provided. It's not a bring your own thing. It's not a potluck. 
it's provided at this ceremony. So to run out of food or drink would be very embarrassing. This would be an embarrassing moment for the wedding party, the, the bride and groom's parents. So if Mary was serving in the capacity that we see in the next few verses, again, this wedding must have been a close family member. So it was a reflection on Mary as well because she had involvement in this wedding, in the planning. And so it's not something that she would want to have to go through either. Uh, there's a very good chance Mary already had a reputation throughout uh, you know, the area. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders of the day even questioned Jesus at one time, indicating that he was born out of wedlock. You know, So uh, Mary may have had a reputation in that way. Didn't want to add to that. We don't know. But Mary knew that this would disgrace the family to not have enough food or drink. And it could be a reflection on her as well. So notice that Mary didn't tell Jesus what to do. Moms, <laughs> Mary didn't tell Jesus what to do. She just reported the problem to him, didn't she? She didn't say, you need to go get some wine or you need to make some wine because we're running short here. She just said, they have no wine. Jesus would have known the implications of that because of this embarrassing situation of not having enough food or drink. So she seeks help from the one that she believes can help. She knew Jesus had the resources to alleviate this problem. He was the Son of God. If anyone could help, surely He could, right? You know, if you're the one that created grapes, obviously making wine would be a fairly easy task, wouldn't it? But imagine this situation. People come to this wedding, and by Jewish tradition, certain things are expected. They're expecting food, drink, and plenty of celebration to go along with it. So to fall short in any of these things would leave these guests as feeling cheated even. Uh, this would be a major faux pas for them. It wouldn't be appropriate for this family at all. And in some cases, it's written in Jewish law that this would actually be against the law to do this, that there would be penalties, there would be fines for not doing that, which is just crazy. It's hard for us to imagine that in this day and age, to be fined for not having enough, you know? Hey, I didn't get any cake. I'm calling the police, you know? It'd be crazy. So, in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, now, at first glance, this seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Because we know, guys, how we would say that. I know we don't. It's not a term of endearment to our wives. We would never say that. Woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, we're quoting Scripture if we do that. It could be that we could get away with that, right? You need to take out the trash. Or, no, they wouldn't say that because they wouldn't be telling us what to do. The trash is full. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> I'm not going to try that. If you guys want to, go ahead. But I'm not going to try that. So it does sound harsh, though. It's a woman. You just look at the text, and it just doesn't sound quite right. But the Greek word for woman used here is a title of respect. It's, it's, it's actually similar to us saying my lady or ma'am. And even in some cases, the translation is even 
mother. Mother, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you look at the text, mother, you know the calling upon my life. You don't know what all the future holds for me. You don't understand that yet, but you know that God has a plan for my life. And it's not time. It's the, the hour has not come yet for me to be revealed in this way. It's interesting that it's the same word for woman that's used at the cross in John 19 when Jesus says to Mary, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. It's the same word. So I think it's a term of respect and it's a term of endearment. So don't go using that loosely around the house, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So in either case here, it's not a rebuke, but a statement of truth. Jesus doesn't mean any disrespect to Mary, his mother, but he is abrupt with her, isn't he? He's telling her the way things are. He's telling her the truth of the situation. He's communicating that he is now being directed only by his heavenly Father. And that the time for him to be revealed as Savior and Lord, his hour has not yet come. Now this is a phrase that we're going to see repeated throughout the Gospel. It's the first time we see it in John so far, but uh, his hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 6, my time has not yet come. Verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. John 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, for his hour had not yet come. What is this referring to, this, this hour, this time? Well, if you look in John chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Father, Jesus is praying to His heavenly Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may also glorify You. It's coming up to that time. Jesus is praying in the garden. It's coming up to that time when He's going to face His crucifixion, resurrection, and all of that. It's that end time scenario for Jesus as we know and we have recorded for us. That's the hour that He's talking about. The hour that He is going to be truly glorified to all. And so when you see that phrase, and we'll see it again and again, that's what it's referring to, that hour. And of course, that time has not come yet. He's still got ministry that's lying ahead of him that he uh, has to do and needs to do to satisfy the requirements of what the Father wants him to do. So verse 5, and imagine this scene. You know, Jesus is just, well, woman, what is... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And you can almost see mom turn around, you know, <laughs> say to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary has a role in this celebration. She's addressing the servants now, isn't she? She's telling them, whatever he says to do, you do it. So she's got some responsibility here, but she's basically saying now, this one's out of my hands. I've turned it over to the one that can take care of it. He's, she had every confidence that he was going to in some way. Even if that meant, okay, boys, you know, Nathaniel, Philip, James, Andrew, John, hey, you guys, can you run down to the convenience store, you know, on the corner? We need to get as much wine as they've got and tell them when they get a new shipment in tomorrow, I'll deliver it right to the house. We need wine. We need it, you know. He could have sent them after it, but he was capable 
of taking care of this situation to himself. And it was already preordained by the Father that this would be a miracle that he would perform. So, she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, it's a great statement because we sit here tonight as servants of the Lord, don't we? And what's being said to this in this to us? Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. <laughs> Pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's just obedience. Whatever He says to do, do it. There's the application for us in this. So, verse 6 says that we there are six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now here's what I love about John's writing. He gives us some detail here, doesn't he? He could have just said, yeah, there were some vessels there for purification. You know, but what does he, what does he call it? There's six stone water pots set aside for the very purpose of purification of the Jews. And they would contain about 20 or 30 gallons apiece, these six stone water pots. So what is this purification? We've got six stone water pots. They're set there. They're obviously for something, we know. It says the manner of purification of the Jews. What's that all about? Flip over to the book of Mark, chapter 7, if you will. Mark, chapter 7. And we're going to read the first five verses there to give us some insight of this manner of purification. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Him, having come from Jerusalem. So there's some religious leaders of the day. They're going to Jesus in this text. Now when they saw some of His disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Now how would they know that? Well, I'm sure their hands were dirty. That's the easiest way to tell, right? They didn't have the little squirt containers of, <laughs> you know, to clean their hands with, uh, present with them. So their hands were dirty. So now here, look at this. They're eating with dirty hands. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Guys, we had mothers wanted us to wash our hands. Did you wash your hands before you eat? Same thing, only this was a tradition, but these religious leaders of the day had made it into a law as far as they were concerned. You know, hey, you're doing something really bad here. If you wash, don't wash your hands before you eat or touch food. And then... Uh, you know, washing the very things that you ate out of, making sure they were clean. And we do that as well, don't we? I work with some guys that they won't wash out their coffee cups because they feel like 
you know, the stuff that cakes in the bottom just gives the coffee more flavor over time. You know, I, I'm not a proponent of that myself. I like a clean coffee cup to drink out of. But these guys do that. So here we have these religious leaders asking this of Jesus. So this was a tradition that's being carried out even at this wedding. If you flip back over to John, there were these six stone water pots that were in place for the purpose of the guests to wash their hands before they eat, to wash utensils with, uh, that they had just eaten from or would be eating from. It was just a cleanliness thing. Keep things clean. Uh, so these things are available for that, whether it be before the meal, after the meal, it doesn't really matter. That's what they're in place for. They were basically the kitchen sink of the day, right? And because they had a lot of people at this wedding, someone had determined that we probably needed six of them. We've got quite a few people coming in and out of here. be a good idea to have six stone water pots available for people to keep their hands clean. Now, these were ordinary stone water pots. Now, I don't know how many stone water pots each house had, you know, in the day, but I think it was probably like us with, you know, coolers or something. Hey, uh, we're having a get-together. Could you bring your cooler full of whatever, or bring your lawn chair. We don't have enough places to sit. It was probably something that other people, you know, rolled over, carried over to help them have. In one household, to have six of these when you might only have a bride and a groom living there for some time, didn't make a whole lot of sense. So they had six, six stone water pots put in place for the washing of hands and, and utensils. And this was to fulfill this tradition of Temporary purification. Keep their hands clean. So these sticks, stone water pots that are going to be used by the Lord, as we'll see in our text, to meet a need, to satisfy a requirement, to perform a miracle, and to manifest His glory. We're going to see in verse 11, and we read it already, that He manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. This whole scene that we see take place, this changing water to wine, is for the purpose of Jesus manifesting His glory to those that would be there to see it and be aware of it. But it wasn't to everyone. Not everyone in the, that was there for the wedding and for the celebration were aware that this was going on. Mary knew it was happening. The servants knew, because she had just said, whatever He tells you to do, do it. And these disciples these new followers of Jesus were going to be there to experience this work, this miracle that He was going to do as well. So verse 7, Jesus says to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So, six stone water pots, six ordinary, everyday stone water pots filled to the brim with water. Not an unusual request, but what were they lacking? They weren't lacking water, they were lacking wine. So, I don't know, I you know, try to put myself in place of those that are there, these servants. Whatever he says to do, do it. Go fill those water pots full of water. Okay. When you want to know, now how does that help me? get more wine. 
Where are we going with this, Jesus? What are you having us do? So this could amount, as the text told us, 20 to 30 gallons each. So anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water now. So the servants are obedient. They do just what He commanded, which is what servants are supposed to do, right? Amen? Verse 8, And He said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Another step of faith, another step of obedience. Because if these are servants and you have a master of the feast and they take him, he's expecting wine, and they take him a cup of water, I got a feeling that the master of the feast is not going to be real happy when he touches the cup to his lips and it's just water. He's going to be upset with the servants, probably. So these servants are just being obedient. I don't know. He said, fill it up with water. I'm just going to take water. See what happens. Don't know where he's going with this. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know how it's going to work. But we'll do it. So, of course, it wasn't water. It was wine, right? Or was it? At what point in this whole thing did it change from water to wine? No idea, but it happened. Verse 9, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So now we get a little bit of insight to see who was in charge of the wine. Why did he call the bridegroom? We're going to get a little bit more information in the next verse, but if the bridegroom's in charge, did he not buy enough? Did he try to cheap, cheap out here? Did he just have more people there than what he expected? I mean, uh, we have uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're invited, but was it a last-minute thing? We don't know. Don't know what's going on there for sure. But without this divine intervention... He and his new bride may have gained a reputation right from the very start of their new marriage, right? As, oh, that's the couple that didn't have enough wine, right? They might have to wear t-shirts or something indicating that. You know, the community might buy them that says they would be known as the no whiners. No whiners. <laughs> or maybe no whining. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's just something I thought. But how you to live that down? You know, you got this t-shirt. Never mind. Verse 10. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So this gives us the indication of who was responsible for the wine, right? The bridegroom. You kept the good wine for last. The master of the feast is telling that. So he obviously knows. Now, what would constitute inferior wine? That's what, a question that I had as well. It's like, okay, so they've got good wine at the beginning, and then as the week goes on or whatever, the wine becomes less. Uh, it's not as good. It's inferior. Maybe they add water to the wine to you know, stretch it out, make it go farther. I don't, I don't know. Uh, watering down seems like it would make it last longer. How much water was in the pots again? 
Yeah, they were full, weren't they? Now, wait a minute. How do you, what's going on here? We got pots full of water. How do we get wine? It just doesn't make sense. He said, fill it to the brim. So we know right away that this wasn't like a miracle mix, was it? <laughs> it wasn't like they went over there with you know, little packets of wine, put their arm down in there, stir it up, whatever. <laughs> you know, that wasn't going on because it was filled to the brim with water. They really couldn't add anything else, could they? All of that which was water became wine, all of it. So it was a complete transformation. Water became wine. It wasn't a mix. It wasn't some parlor trick, if you will. Jesus changed that water to wine. Using what? Ordinary, everyday pots transformed from the inside out by the Lord, by a supernatural work, by a miracle. Sound familiar? <laughs> Who did Jesus choose to be His disciples? We could say ordinary, everyday pots, didn't He? Didn't because most of the guys were fishermen. There was a tax collector thrown in there. But most of the guys were just ordinary men. And who witnessed the miracle? Mary, the servants, and the disciples. The master of the feast and the bridegroom, they had no idea. I'm sure the bridegroom was going, where'd wine come from? <laughs> I thought I bought all the wine. So question for you, how many disciples are present at this point? Well, from our previous study, we know the interaction that took place. Remember in John 1.37 that initially there were these two disciples that were with John the Baptist. He pointed out Jesus and they followed Him, right? Remember the two creepers, the two stalkers that were following close behind? You know, Andrew was one. The text tells us that, right? We don't know for sure who the other one was. But again, most scholars agree that it was John, the author of this Gospel. Because John has this thing in the way that he writes that he never really calls attention to himself. You'll even see in later texts that it's the sons of Zebedee, right? Who John is one of those. So he refers to himself kind of in a hidden way, if you will, throughout the whole book of John. So scholars agree that it's John. I'm not a scholar, but I do agree with the scholars <laughs> that, that it's probably John. But what was the first thing that Andrew did? Andrew went and told his brother Peter. So if John was the other disciple of the other two, what would John have probably done? I think John would have gone and told his brother, who was James. John, as the writer of this gospel, did, doesn't mention himself by name as the other disciple. So it's not unusual that he wouldn't mention going to tell his brother about the Messiah either. Now I'm taking a little bit of liberty with the text here, but I want you to stay with me on this. Since Mary was John's aunt, and Jesus and John were cousins, then James is related as well. So it wouldn't be a stretch at all for him to be at the wedding. Okay, that makes sense. Well, you might be thinking, Pastor Jim, this, this is just a lot of speculation on your part. It seems like a stretch. Well, I agree, but stay with me now. I think this could be further confirmed in a couple other things. 
As we've discussed before, who are the three guys that spent a lot of time with Jesus that got to be a part of and see things that the other disciples didn't? Peter, James, and John. They had front row seats, if you will, to uh, certain events that the other disciples didn't. In Mark 5, when Jesus visited the house of Jairus to raise his daughter from the dead, who was with Jesus in the room? Peter, James, and John. In Mark 9, at the transfiguration on the high mountain, who was there? Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 26, who did Jesus take with him into the garden to pray? Peter, James, and John. These three men were a part of a close circle of Jesus' disciples. Also, in Matthew chapter 4, who were the first four guys Jesus called that they left their nets, they left their fishing and followed Him? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So you're probably thinking, what's, what's the point? What is the point you're trying to get across? Verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. But what happened? We know the story. Jesus performed this miracle. He manifests His glory to them. And His disciples believed. But think about it for a second. When Jesus performed miracles, it was obviously for a reason. And the reason was normally twofold. To accomplish a physical purpose. They needed wine. Physically, wine was presented. And also to teach a spiritual lesson. Jesus didn't go about just doing miracles just for fun, if you will. He had a purpose behind it. Something needed to be done in a particular situation, and then there was also a spiritual implication or a spiritual lesson to be learned from that. So He, he performed miracles to impact the lives of others and to teach those around Him a lesson. It was never to show off what He could do, it was always for a purpose. He performed miracles of provision, water into wine, feeding of the 5,000. He performed miracles of healing, Peter's mother-in-law, the nobleman's son, the leper. He even performed miracles over his own creation. He calmed the seas. He caused the fig tree to wither. And we know that he raised people from the dead, Jairus' daughter and even Lazarus. But we also know that these miracles become a source of controversy in Jesus' ministry, don't they? In Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41, Jesus had to rebuke the religious leaders, saying there that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So they were trying to get him to do a miracle. Hey, do something for us. Do create something. Do something, Jesus. And he said, well, no, I ain't going to do that. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the great whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. We know he's talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. 
Also, in Luke 23, at the trial before his crucifixion, standing in front of Herod, it says in verse 8 that Herod hoped to see some miracle done by him. Herod wasn't interested in all the stuff that was going on. He had Jesus of Nazareth in front of him and heard all about the things that he had been doing, and he was hoping to see a miracle of some sort. So Jesus was pressured by others to perform miracles. We know that from uh, God's Word. However, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't perform miracles to impress people or even by peer pressure. It didn't happen. He only did what the Father told Him to do to manifest His glory. So here we are at this wedding. A miracle is about to happen. The first recorded miracle. For what reason? To manifest His glory. To accomplish a physical purpose. To teach a spiritual lesson involving what? Six ordinary stone pots. He's going to meet a need. They needed wine. So that was the physical purpose. But what was the lesson to those around him? What would the disciples learn from this? How many disciples were there? Well, going back to what we were talking about before, I believe there were six. I believe Andrew and Peter, John and James, Philip and Nathaniel, which is six disciples. How many stone water pots? How many ordinary stone pots do we have there? Six. I think it's very interesting. I don't think it's a stretch at all. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? When they were all done and Jesus told them to go out and pick up the remaining food and put them into baskets? How many baskets were there? Twelve. Twelve baskets full. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Huh. Imagine that. Still, think about this. Six pots. Six disciples. I don't think it's a stretch. I think it's the way that Jesus worked. I think that there was something going on here in the text that maybe typically when we read through it, we just kind of look past. We look over. We don't focus on the pots. It's a miracle, right? And I'm not telling you to focus on the pots this evening. No, not at all. I'm saying just look at what's taking place in this scenario and the lesson that could be taught to the disciples in this miracle. So the water turning into wine, it's orchestrated by the Lord to manifest His glory by meeting this physical need and teaching a spiritual lesson. Six ordinary stone pots filled to the brim with water, wine, poured out supernaturally in the lives of, of others, right? Meeting the need of what it is that they thirst for. We also have six ordinary disciples that would be eventually filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit, if you will. And poured out supernaturally into the lives of others. Meeting the need in the others for the very thing that they thirst for. Sure, the people at the wedding, they wanted, they needed wine. And the disciples saw Jesus meet that physical need using what? Six ordinary stone pots set aside for the purpose of washing or for purification, filled with water. What did He do with them? He filled them up and had them poured out. What does He want to do in our lives? Fill us up and pour us out supernaturally to impact the lives of others. 
He wants to take us, ordinary, everyday pots, <laughs> filled with ordinary, everyday water, and He wants to transform us into useful vessels filled with His Holy Spirit to be poured out into the lives of others. Amen?